This is 100 Days of Dante, a podcast journey through Dante's divine comedy, one canto at a time. Join us online at 100daysofdante.com. Let's read together. Canto 13 continues the journey on a new terrace or level of purgatory. Our narrator is the pilgrim. Remember, he hasn't been formally named in the text as Dante. The pilgrim has been through anti-purgatory and through the terrace of souls repenting for their pride. He's now arriving on the terrace where the souls will atone for envy. On this terrace, the pilgrim describes a different landscape in detail. The path isn't as wide as it has been. It's less steep. There are no statues or inscriptions to look at. Nothing visual to draw the eye except the livid color of the rock on the path. This color, a kind of gray-blue, is the color of bruises on the body, and it symbolizes our spiritual injury from sin. As we can see later in this canto, the color actually hides the souls on this terrace from view. They're camouflaged in the same bruised tone. As they ascend the path, Virgil and the pilgrim encounter spirits through sound. They don't see them, they just hear voices calling out moral lessons of love to counteract the sin of envy. There are parallels here with the previous terrace. The pilgrim will hear examples from the life of Mary, from the Gospel of Mark, and from Greek myth. All three are a corrective to envy. Historically, these examples remind us of the power of moral example in the life of Christians in the Middle Ages. Poetically, they'll inspire the souls on this terrace to repentance. The moral lessons are spoken because the souls on this terrace can't see. Their eyes have been sewn shut, depriving them of sense input that led them to their envy in the first place. The pilgrim goes on to meet a woman from Siena named Sapia. Born to an influential but a divided family, Sapia rejoiced at the death of her nephew in battle. Her story adds a final moral example to correct us all in our envy. Sapia asks the pilgrim about himself, and he confesses that he's more prone to pride than he is to envy. The canto closes with Sapia's personal appeal to the pilgrim to remember her in prayer. This appeal repeats a theme in Canto 11 and elsewhere, that our prayers on earth can affect the plight of souls in purgatory. These are the events of the canto, and now I want to focus on three points of significance. The first is a poetic significance. In Canto 13, we see a pattern emerging. This pattern involves different ways of knowing, meaning the manner through which the pilgrim or Virgil understand purgatory and their experiences there. Commentators have identified three different ways of knowing. The first is through experience. It's known as corporal vision, the kind of apprehension that we have when we get physical input from the world around us. The pilgrim and Virgil both demonstrate this way of knowing when they look at or listen to or respond to the settings and the souls around them. This kind of knowledge helps them to navigate purgatory, but it's not sufficient in itself to know spiritual truths. Another way of knowing is intellectual vision. This is the kind of knowledge that we have not based on any previous experience, but based purely on the work of our minds. Intellectual vision can be aided by revelation, but it operates through reasoning, the wheels of our mind turning. We see this kind of knowing when the pilgrim or Virgil will draw conclusions about the significance of their experience. In Canto 13, there's a great example of this way of knowing when Virgil looks to the sky to find the sun. 
He reasons that the sun can guide them upward sooner in their ascent, faster than any other sign. It's always moved in a given direction. It should reliably guide them now, right? Oh, cherished light in whom I place my trust, please guide us on this unfamiliar road, he said. For in this place, guidance we need. You warm the world, you shed your light on it. Unless there be some reason that opposes, your radiant light should always show the way. In this way, Virgil shares an intellectual vision as a way of rationally navigating his strange journey. But there is a final way of knowing. It's called spiritual vision. A way of knowing fully aided by God's grace. An apprehension of divine truth. As a pagan, Virgil lacks this kind of sight. But the pilgrim? Well, he's increasingly relying on it. We get a hint of the pilgrim's spiritual vision in Canto 13 when Virgil explains the presence of the voices that everyone is hearing. Using intellectual vision, Virgil reasons that the voices must have the purpose of teaching moral instruction. But notably, he indicates that the pilgrim should hear the voices and be transformed, not himself. Here's what Virgil says. The envious this circle scourges, and that is why the whip used here is fashioned from the cords of love. The curb must sound the opposite of love. You will hear it most likely, I should think, before the pass of pardon has been reached. With these lines, Virgil acknowledges the limits of his own understanding. The pilgrim, not he, will hear the voices and understand their meaning. Moreover, the pilgrim, not Virgil, can be transformed by that message and those letters on his forehead can be removed. What a difference from the Inferno, where the pilgrim relied exclusively on Virgil's knowledge to understand his experience. Now he's steadily growing in his own ability to know and understand the truths around him. So there you go. Corporal, intellectual, spiritual vision. Be on the lookout in future Kanti for these three distinct ways of knowing. Now, a second significance. This one a bit briefer. In the terraces of purgatory, the pilgrim learns about and reflects on his own sinfulness by studying past examples. Some are scriptural, some come from ancient history, but the pilgrim specifically asks for contemporary examples, what translators have labeled as Italian. In Canto 13, the pilgrim calls out. He asks, please, let me know. I'd be very grateful. Is someone here perhaps Italian? Well, Italian's an unfortunate translation because there is no unified Italian government until the 19th century. A lot of Italians today would argue that there still isn't a unified Italian culture. It's a very regional place, even today. What the pilgrim seems to ask when he poses this question is, hey, is anyone from that big Latin peninsula south of the Alps here? In other words, he's making an appeal to a common geography, not a sociopolitical unity. Place really matters here. In many of these examples, the author chooses stories that underscore the factionalism, tribalism, the divisiveness of his own day. In Canto 13, it's the story of Sapia. At one level, there's a broader cultural critique here from the author. He seems to lament the material interests of family wealth, factional power that have corrupted the Christian character of his day. But there's also a regional critique, I would argue. When Sapia asks the pilgrim who he is, he identifies as someone afflicted more by pride. He calls it the penance done below, referring to the terrace of pride he'd previously visited. Well, commentators say that this is the author's own personal identification with the sin of pride. 
I'd go further to say that there's a bit of tribal identity here. The pilgrim is a Florentine. He's speaking to a Sienese noblewoman. Their identities with their home cities and their families make them representative of a popular type. For anyone who's visited Florence, you know that the Florentines are a really proud group of people. Their dialect remains supreme in the language today. The city's art and architecture dominate over the nation's history. Dante, the author, sets up the pilgrim as a kind of archetype of a broader Florentine pride. Now, admittedly, this was just emerging in Dante's own time, but Sapia's comments reinforce this same critique. She notes that the Sienese have, quote, foolish hopes, end quote, of trying to make themselves great by competing with Genoa in trade or finding ancient ruins buried underneath their city. The implication is that the Florentines already have much to be proud of. The Sienese are simply envious, grasping for greatness where it's lacking. Of course, I've lived in Florence, and so I may have borrowed a bit of their snobbishness with this interpretation. Okay, last significance, this one shortest of all. In Canto 13, like before, our pilgrim is completing a kind of spiritual reflection on himself. He picks up the sin of envy, examines it, asking of himself how it's affected him in his world. Since he remains unnamed, but he continues to speak in the first person, he's a kind of stand-in for us as readers. How have I been affected by envy in a materialist culture like ours, one in which I measure my success against my coworkers' stagnation, or my home against the nicer house down the block, or the success of my relationships against the failure of others? What can I learn from Sapia? As we progress through the different terraces, allow yourself to be taken in by this poetic device, the unnamed narrator speaking in the first person for all of us. Allow yourself to be moved as he's moved, to feel pity when he feels pity, to repent as he repents, and to ask those difficult questions that can transform us all. Thank you for reading Dante's Divine Comedy with us. Continue the journey at 100daysofdante.com. 100 Days of Dante is brought to you by the Baylor University Honors College with support from the Tory Honors College at Biola University, the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University, the University of Dallas, Whitworth University, and Gonzaga University in Florence.